You're listening to the New Life Podcast. We're one church in multiple locations based out of Aberdeen, South Dakota. We hope this message helps the gospel come alive for you and gives you an opportunity to encounter Jesus in a whole new way. For more info on New Life, you can check out our website at www.newlifeaberdeen.org. Let's get ready to listen to today's message. All right. We are going to get started right out of the gate. If you would turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. There's going to be abrupt transitions because time is of the essence. Would you turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 12? Uh, We are going to see one of the most intense parables of all time. I mean, Jesus kind of like the greatest leader of all time would do. He saves the best for last. And so if you don't have your Bibles on you, maybe you bring that to church or maybe you can find one under your seat. Uh, What we all have are these things called phones with Bible apps on them, so you can use that too. Or you can look at the screen. We're going to walk through this text together. Um, Usually I try to integrate some humor and things into sermons. This one's a little tough because it's about death and murder and violence, and uh, it's kind of like just a graphic Law & Order episode. So there's not a lot of humor to be found in this story. I will say as it gets started, though, uh, that I think Jesus used this obviously as a prophetic statement as to what's going to happen in his own life in just a few days. This is where we're at in Mark. Mark's the shortest of the Gospels. And so as it gets into chapter 12, we are just like right in the last few days before he goes to the cross. He's already had the triumphal entry. He's already had the, you know, the, the leash laid at his feet. We had people saying, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. They're singing his praises. But just a short time later, Uh, true to the script that he already told them was going to happen, they are going to turn on him in a very violent, violent way, and they are going to take his life, and they're going to do so in a way that's just disgusting and, and inhumane. They're going to brutalize Jesus, and so he does that for us. If you're new to church, if you're new to hearing about the gospel, he does that for us, and so this is humbling. And so he tells this parable, and it's kind of like an aha, gotcha moment. In fact, most parables are, are mysterious where he just unpacks them for his disciples, and most people don't know what he's talking about. He kind of leaves them in the dark. This one's different. By the end of his time with these Pharisees and scribes, they have this aha moment where he sets them up. He asks them a question about how something should be handled, and then he drops the ball on them, and they realize that they're the bad guy in the story. And here's what I've come to realize about working with people, and maybe you, you don't need to write this down. You'll probably just remember it. Anyone love a good storyline, movies, like action movies, thriller movies, anybody? You love a storyline. Maybe you love good books like that. Here's what I've come to find out in my 40 young years getting older of life. Here's what no one wants to be in the story, the bad guy. You ever notice that? Like when you're working with people in counseling or whatever the context or pastoring, you'll find that everyone paints themselves in a certain narrative, and they'll realize that they're not perfect, but no one wants to be the bad guy in the story. In fact, you can see people get a bit neurotic when they realize that they're actually the bad guy in their own script. And that plays out in a variety of contexts, but I found it to be very true. And so these guys are ultimate religious but, you know, just pharisaical personalities, and they would never see themselves as a bad guy. And so they're so easy to set up in their pride because of that, and Jesus does just that. But he tells this parable of a wealthy landowner and a murdered son. Anybody have sons in church? Sons are a precious commodity, aren't they not, dads? In fact, in the New Testament and the Old Testament, to have a son had special significance because it allowed you 
for your lineage to continue, and it had practical implications even as to your wealth and your name. And so to have a son, and the Bible's gonna talk about him as a beloved son, especially as a landowner, meant a great deal. And so Jesus leverages this reality in the lives of the people, in the context, in the mission field in which he's preaching to unpack a story for them that they'd all understand. And for me, I mean, I don't wanna just tell the same stories in church again because I think I've told them all. Right, but for me, having sons has been very, very much something that's close to my heart where I knew I wanted them, and then when I had them, I really knew how much I wanted them. I can remember when I had my first so- child, who's now 15, and I remember the ultrasound in Bakersfield. We went to this kind of mom-and-pop shop. I don't know if you guys know that California is a little different than the rest of the country, but you don't have to go to like a, a hospital or a doctor's office to do an ultrasound. You can just go to like a coffee shop type of place and pay a little extra money. And I remember we did that, and I remember when I found out, they said, hey, see this thing over here? Um, That means he's a boy. I remember screaming in that ultrasound like I just won the Super Bowl. I was the Tom Brady of that moment because it's like this Lion King moment, right? You know, you have your Simba, you have your lineage, and in the pride of the heart of man, that's just a big deal. And so Jesus tells this story about a man who has wealth, who's a landowner, and his son is murdered and he's at the end of his life and it's a shocking, shocking parable that's meant to condemn the listener. And it's a word for the religious. And so open your Bibles if you have them to Mark chapter 12, starting in verse one. We're gonna walk through it together and we're gonna walk through it kind of quickly. The Bible says this, and he began to speak in parables. He'd been doing this his whole ministry. And he began to speak to them in parables. And he says this, and he's talking to a very religious crowd who's already plotting his death. He says, a man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower. This is standard procedure. This is how you would build a vineyard. And so he built a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants, also very common. And then he went to another country. This would have been common practice. For every farmer that's listening in your online communities or downtown or here in this space this morning, you kind of already know how this works, right? You can harvest your own crop or you can lease it out for a good rate and make some money that way. And this guy chooses the latter. And the Bible says this, when the season came, he sent a servant. This is where the plot thickens. This is where it all nosedives. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and they beat him and they sent him away empty-handed. If you look behind the text into the actual verbiage that the Bible is using, it translates to punch or to hit. It has a connotation of criminal behavior, illegal, vicious, wicked, unjust. And here's why it's so unjust. These guys would have been compensated throughout the process. This is how it worked. And so they would get to lease the land And when they would harvest, the way that they would lease it is they would give a percentage of their harvest to the landowner. Very fair. They really had no other means to make this kind of wealth, and so it was incredibly generous. And as he does this, he would have been paying them through the process because you can't survive if you don't have some income in the intermediate stage. And so here he is taking these guys in who have nothing, and he's paying them not just at the harvest, but he's paying them through the process. And so they're living off of his land, living in his house as he's far away, and he's feeding them, and he's giving them some type of allotted allowance. He's treating them very well. And so now has come the time, and it would have taken a while. This would have been going on for a while. 
to harvest these grapes, and someone comes to collect what's rightfully his, and instead of treating them fairly, instead of giving them percentage, they just beat the living tar out of this guy. The Bible says this in verse four. It just keeps going. Again, he sent them to another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. The second guy gets it worse than the first. It literally means to bash someone's head in with the verbiage that the Bible's using. And can you hear the religious leaders of the day as he's telling them this story? Maybe he's kneeling down, he's looking him in the eye, and they're probably just thinking to themselves, what in the world is going on? And in their own pride, they can't see what's really happening, even though they're already plotting to kill Jesus. They don't see where he's taking this rabbit trail. In their hearts, they're already thinking, man, this guy needs to be paid back. Justice needs to be served. And it escalates and it escalates and it escalates. And by the time you get to verse five, this is what it says. This is what Jesus says to him. And he sent another and they killed him. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. They didn't have a value for life. If someone was beaten half dead or murdered, it didn't really matter to these people because they were vicious, they were carnal, and that's how they operated. And so here's what I want us to see. That in our walk with the Lord, if we stray from the Lord, or maybe we never even knew him, if we're living in our own flesh and our own worldly desires, here is the application point at this point in the storyline. You never know how far your sin is going to take you, so don't assume that you do. You might think, well, I would never do this or I would never do that, but the Bible says that all have fallen short of the glory of God. And that even our good deeds are like filthy rags before the Lord. So we really can't say unequivocally what we would or would not do if we're following the plans and purposes of the enemy and not God the Father. And so Jesus is saying, you know that you're religious. You know that you think that you are pious, that you serve the Lord, that you're pretty much better than everyone else. You have all these special religious rituals that you follow. But he's going to drop a bomb on them and he's going to tell them you're the tenant in the story. Or at least they're going to figure it out for themselves. I had an elderly person in our church, or at least that comes to one of our services. I think he goes to two churches, but we won't hold that against him. He came up to me and he typed something, and this is it. He typed on this, I think it's typed, I don't know. I've never typed anything in my life, like on a typewriter. But he cut it out in box form, and he said, I want you to hear this because it reminds me of the sermons that you preach. It's an old hymn, and maybe you can raise your hand if you've heard the hymn. I've never heard it. Uh, Wayne said, sin will take you farther than you want to go. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay and cost you more than you want to pay. Has anyone ever heard that before? I never have. How many of you know that's true? If there's times in your life you thought, I'd never do that, and here you are looking like the person in this storyline. Matthew 21, Jesus adds that they stone this guy to death. There's lots of stones around the vineyards, and so they stone this man to death. And at a certain point, don't you have to kind of look at the landlord? I mean, he sends someone, he gets beaten. He sends someone, he gets bashed in the head. He sends a handful of others. Some they murder, some they don't. At a certain point, you have to be thinking, I know it's good to be gracious, but you know, fool me 10 times, shame on right, me. And so he just keeps upping the ante. It is something that they wouldn't have been able to understand in the most sane mind. It would have felt incredibly, incredibly odd that he would do this. And the Bible says in verse six, he still had one other. Here's where the plot really thickens. He still had one other. He still had not just a son, but the Bible says a beloved son. That son that always was the apple of his eye. We know in translation to what this really means in the gospel, his only son. 
And finally he sent to them saying, they will respect my son. At this point in the line, the Pharisees and the scribes and everyone hearing it already knows the massive price that this will cost and the economy of the New Testament. And they're all looking at Jesus and they're shaking their heads. They're saying, don't send the son. The son has massive implications. To disrespect the son is worse than hurting the rich father personally. To disrespect the son is to create a havoc on future generations as the lineage is gonna come to a close. Whatever you do for your own wealth, for your own dignity, for your own respect, don't send the son. And Jesus is probably just smirking. He's saying they sent now the son and he's a good son. And this is how the Bible plays this story out. This is what Jesus says. But those tenants said to one another, Instead of going, man, I can't believe we've murdered all these people and bashed their heads in. They think in their evil hearts this. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. If we can kill him, come let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and they killed him. And here's what's most tragic, even above the death. They took him and they threw him out of the vineyard. They treated him like roadkill. In Jewish culture, when someone dies, it's a big deal. When someone gets married, it's a big deal. These ceremonies didn't take hours, they took days. We've preached on different stories of people losing their sons in the Bible and kind of what happens, there's music behind it, there's, there's flute players, there's people, if you're wealthy, or not even wealthy, but just kind of almost wealthy, middle class, that you would pay to come in and cry at your child's funeral. You see this happen in the New Testament. And so for them to take this moment where not only they murder the son, but to take him on the side of the road and treat him like roadkill, like he's a cat or dog that just got ran over by a tractor, and take him and just throw him in the ditch or whatever they did, and then go about their business as if he doesn't mean anything, it would have been the ultimate disregard for life. It would have been the absolute slap in the face to the father. The ultimate disrespect for this man who's done everything for these ungrateful tenants. And then Jesus says this. This is kind of the capstone moment. Look at me because this is where it gets thick. He puts it in question form and he says this. He says, what will the owner of the vineyard do? And he doesn't pull any punches. He says this to the Pharisees. He says, he will come and he will destroy the tenants and he's gonna give the vineyard to others. What should be done? What does justice look like in this storyline? And so everyone that's religious, they know the Bible and the Old Testament very well. They're going right back to Genesis 9, 6. Capital punishment, eye for an eye. He's gonna disrespect their only, his, his beloved son like that, then the heads are gonna roll. And when it says in Luke, because this is in multiple gospel accounts, when they heard, they heard that they said it, he said, may it never be. May it never be. And so they're probably shaking with anger and they're still not this moment. That's my, that, actually my butt was ringing right there. That's funny. There's still this moment. Let's get back to it because I'm in a serious, serious moment here. There's this moment where they say, may it never be. And now the next verse is the light bulb goes off and he says something that's incredibly, incredibly significant. And so I want you to hear him say it, and we'll come back to it in a minute, but just listen to how this story plays out. In verse 10, it says, have you not read the scripture? 
He goes back to Psalm 118 and just make a mental note of that. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He says, this was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him but feared the people for they perceived that he had told the parable against who? Stay with me. He told the parable against who? Against them. Could you imagine having that light bulb moment? Kill him, kill him. Well, maybe you want to show a little grace. They have this light bulb moment where they perceived that the parable was against him, and so they left him and they went away. Now, a few days later, they are going to murder him, but they know that they have to wait. When it says against them, it's the strongest possible negative in Luke in the Greek. He realized that Jesus is condemning themselves. They start to put the pieces together that God, even in Isaiah 5, it talks about a same type of of parable or metaphor where God is the plant. He's the one that plants the vineyard. He cultivates it. Everything in the vineyard belongs to him. And the people of God, they're the vineyard themselves. The vine growers in the parables, those are the religious leaders the steward of Israel's opportunity under the covenant. And there's this harvest that's gonna take place. This goes from Old Testament to New. There's this harvest that's gonna take place in the kingdom of God at the appropriate season. There's a spiritual harvest that's going to take place. And then what they realize is that they're the bad guy in their own story. Even the servants, they have a very special significance. These are the Old Testament prophets who the scribes and the Pharisees thought themselves to be Uh, You know, they would never harm the prophets, the Bible says. They thought they would never harm the prophets the way that their forefathers did. In fact, they've said, uh, they've actually kind of repented of that. They've made a big deal about that. They've said they would never do anything like their fathers did. They saw themselves as spiritually elite. But there was this long history of God's people killing the prophets that came to express God's word and God's judgment on the nation when they sinned and rebelled. In fact, history tells us according just to Justice the Martyr, that the Jews actually took Isaiah, that I just referred to in Isaiah chapter five, they took Isaiah, a great prophet of the Old Testament, and they sawed him in half. Hebrews eleven thirty seven confirms this, saying that righteous pre- preachers in the Old Testament have been sawn in half. The Old Testament prophet Jeremiah was abused endlessly. He was mistreated. He was thrown into a pit. Tradition says that he was stoned to death. Amos ran for his life. Zechariah was chased into a temple. You guys know what happened to him? He was stoned to death. This was common, common type of language in the Old Testament. In Matthew 23, hours after the parable, Jesus addresses these religious leaders. In verse 29, this is what he says. He already tells this parable. Now he says this. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. And this is what he says in verse 33. He says, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? And so they're the bad guy in the narrative. And the only thing that really matters, and you need to kind of hone in with me now as we start to close this thing out, is who is the son in the storyline? You can say it out loud if you think you know it. I've told you before in church, when you're ever in question, you get a question in church, the answer is usually who? There we go. Man, we're just like being brainwashed here at New Life. 
If you ever don't know the answer, the answer is always Jesus. The son is Jesus. The son is innocent. The son is righteous. And there are two simple application points that we're going to walk away from the story with as now we start to get towards the cross. So that we can't, in our own pride, see ourselves in a more elevated position than we actually are, here's what I want you to write down and fill in your little blanks that you have on this really, really cold winter day. Number one is this. There's two thoughts. Number one is we are the tenants. We aren't the good guy in the story either. We are the tenants. Or at least before we come to Christ and turn from our sins and follow him with our hearts, we are the tenants because just like them, in our own sin, we put him on the cross. The Bible says that Christ died for our sins. And if Christ died for our sins, then in essence, his blood is also on our hands. And how would you respond? This is a beautiful story of the mind of God and how he sees the penalty of sin and how he sees justice that needs to be met for the penalty of sin, where he's not looking at it through our perspective. He's looking at it through his perspective of someone who's done everything that he's ever promised. He sent his prophets to preach you know, this, this gospel of judgment if we don't turn away from our sin. Then he brings his own son and they murder the prophets and they beat the prophets and he says, surely they won't do this to my own son. He puts his son on display, his son leads a perfect life and then he goes to a cross because we put him there and we're the tenants in the story. This is a beautiful outline of the gospel in our lives. And he leaves us with this promise in the story that we're the tenants, but if we turn to Christ and we believe upon him, then our sins are forgiven through him and we have redemption and we have power in the Holy Spirit to live this new life. He makes this promise. He says, I'm gonna kill those tenants and I'm gonna give the vineyard, look at me, I'm gonna give the vineyard to others. And so we can actually go from the tenant that stands in judgment to the others in the storyline, and the thing that we need to do is something that we can't do on our own. It's through, only through the power of the Holy Spirit opening up our hearts. We can turn to the Son and beg for his forgiveness for our sins, and he's faithful and just, and he'll forgive every sin that we've ever committed. That's the good news of the gospel. That we're the tenants, but we don't stay the tenants. That we stand in judgment, but you don't have to absorb that judgment. In this world that we live in, hard messages on God's judgment are incredibly unpopular. In fact, if I was just to put a statistic behind it, I would imagine that you really won't even hear the term in more than 20% of all churches in America. That's true. And we look at it through our own lens as if we know we're not too great, but we're not that bad either. And if we just add some Jesus to our lives, then we can even be better. And it's this gospel of self-glorification, where we're the centerpiece of the storyline, but when you actually read the Bible, in fact, we've been spending in this book of the gospel for months and months, we've been sitting in this book, and I want you to see something, that it's not even about you, it's all about Jesus, it's all about God the Father. This narrative, this story is his storyline, he's the centerpiece. If we were actually written in into the script, we would be the extras on the side of the road walking down the street. It's all about Jesus, and what he did for us to be made right with him. And so we look at things like judgment and we say, and how could a loving God, and then you can just fill in the blank, right? Who's ever done that? 
How could a loving God exercise such judgment on our life? And God's saying, look at it through my perspective. I am the vine grower. I have given you everything you need. I have put people in your path where you would turn to me. I'm the, you know, I'm the potter. You're the clay. I've given you everything you need, and I've given you my own son. And instead of loving him and serving him and obeying him, you put him on a cross and you murdered him. And before you come to Christ, you're the tenant in the storyline. I'm the tenant in the storyline. Now here's, here's what's so cool. Here's the hidden gem in this text. The number two, Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. Write that down. I want to explain to you what that means. I asked Chuck, I actually asked Greg, and he said, boy, it's way late. I can't do it. This thing is frozen in the ground. I said, can you bring me a cornerstone? And so I want you to see this cornerstone. Did you guys know that bricks stay cold for a very long time? That, that's how much I suffer for the cause when I bring you this brick. This was in Chuck's front yard, and he brought it this morning. Greg said, my cornerstone's frozen in the dirt. And uh, I don't know where Chuck got this, but it's cold, so it must have been outside. And so he brought this to me this morning. And I want you to see this because it's a powerful, powerful illustration now this obviously, I know this is gonna blow your mind, are you ready? This actually isn't a real cornerstone from the New Testament. I mean, just let that sink in. It's, it's just a brick probably from Menards for about a dollar, but uh, you'll get the idea. Anytime anyone builds stuff, anyone builds stuff? Anytime you build stuff, what do you need to start with? You need to start with a level playing field. If you don't get the first part right, and am I accurate in that if you're building a foundation? If you don't get the first part right, everything else is off, true or false? Right? It's like, it's just the way it works. I've never built anything in my life, but I, I just know that that's true. And so if you're gonna build something right, you have to start out the process right. And the same thing was true on even a more exaggerated level because they didn't have modern technology when they were building stuff in the New Testament. Everyone would have known, number one, they would have known this reference to Psalm 118 that Jesus just quoted. It's the same psalm that says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so as he's having this triumphal entry, he starts quoting things, and they're going, hey, I know that text. I'm religious. That's Psalm 118. He says, do you remember this part from Psalm 118? Right? The, the stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone, has become the cornerstone. And he's saying this. He's saying, that's me. I'm the cornerstone. You're murdering me, and I'm actually the hidden Jenga piece. Without me, everything crumbles. I just got ahead of myself, so let me backtrack and explain the cornerstone. That a long time before Christ even came to earth, they were building things with cornerstones. In fact, they were building God's temple where God dwelled. In 70 AD, this thing had crumbled uh, because of God's, really God's judgment in Rome. But still to this day, did you guys know this? Still to this day, the foundation exists. Still to this day, you can go to Israel and you can see parts of the base root of the foundation. And so although we think of cornerstones in terms of this small object, actually it would have weighed tons. You can actually see this. It was like one of the marvels of ancient technology that they could even take these stones and place them where they needed to be to set up these massive structures thousands of years ago. And so these cornerstones or these foundational stones for the temple were absolutely massive. I heard one guy say they're actually like the size of a railroad tie or a railroad uh, train, like one of the trains on a railroad. He said these things are tons and tons of weight. They're massive. 
And so think of terms of how this would have actually looked like. And he says, have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builder's rejection has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in his eyes. And when they were finding these stones and they were putting this piece together, there were certain stones because they didn't have this type of technology where this brick, I don't know if it's completely symmetrical, but in my naive non-building mind, does this not look pretty good? Can you see it on live stream? It looks pretty good, right? This isn't what it looked like. You kind of got what you got. My mom used to say, you get what you get and you don't throw a, okay, good, we're awake now. And so they had these stones, and the stones were the stones, right? You can't, like, mold a stone of that size. And so they would take the good ones, and they would start building with them, and they'd take the bad stones, and they'd put them in this other pile, the scrap pile, and they would actually keep building until they realized in this Jenga puzzle that they were building that that one odd stone that looked like it couldn't do anything for the superstructure that they were building, actually had all the right crevices and all the right dimensions to become now the cornerstone, and they would start this process with that one in place once they had all the stones that they were gonna use because they knew that that odd fit that no one thought would work was actually the centerpiece to the whole puzzle. Now check this out. Jesus Christ comes along, uses the own text from the scribes and Pharisees that they already would have memorized in Psalms, and he says the stone that the builders rejected took through a three-pointer into the scrap pile has become the cornerstone, and he says this, look at me, he says, that's me. Oh, and by the way, that murdered son, you're the bad guy in the script. They're already plotting his death. That's me too. Can you even imagine how their hearts would sink as they go from hero to goat in about 0.2 seconds? The stone that the builders rejected that nothing can function without has become the cornerstone and the capstone. Without it, nothing can function. And he kind of just drops that ball and he walks away and he starts going towards the cross. Every religious, bigoted, selfish person listening to him in the synagogue would have thought to themselves, Houston, we have a problem. Everything they thought they knew to be true just fell at their feet. He was not supposed to be the Messiah. He was not supposed to be the cornerstone. God's even preparing this analogy of a cornerstone for hundreds of years as they're building these temples. They all knew that a cornerstone was an oddball. They should have seen it coming. Jesus was the ultimate oddball. He didn't come from influence. His mom was teenage and pregnant, and his dad was a lowly carpenter, at least, not, at least his earthly father, his stepdad, who took care of him. Jesus didn't come from uh, this urban area. He was rural. He wasn't rich. He was poor. Except for his supernatural influence, he had no real influence in his life by natural means. In fact, he probably had never traveled more than 200 miles in a radius in his entire life. He was not the Messiah to come in their minds. He was offensive in nature, which made him an extra oddball. He would say things like, without me, there's no way to the Father. He would say things like, I can, and I alone can forgive sins. They're looking at this guy and they want to murder him. They don't want to elevate him. He says things to them like, you're the brood of vipers. 
And they can't understand how, in the mind of God, he could send Jesus as his only son, as the Messiah. Jesus is the oddball in the storyline of your life that is the perfect fit. And here's why this is so significant, and this is how we're gonna close. This is why this is so powerful. That when it comes to cornerstones and capstones, here's where we fall apart. We try to take him as if he is this stone and we've already built our structure and we say, you know what, this is a pretty good structure. I'm gonna take this stone and I'm just gonna add it to the mix. And Jesus says, man, the whole foundation of your life, wake up when I tell you this, this is big. This is the money piece of the sermon, okay? The whole foundation of your life is gonna crumble if you try to take the capstone and insert it in the process as if it's just another stone because I leave no allowance for me to be just another stone in your life. If you wanna make me something that's an extra in your life, then you're gonna be like these tenants and you're gonna be on a fast path to destruction. You're gonna be apart from me from eternity because I'm the son of God. I'm the capstone. And so you can't take your broken marriage and go, you know what, my marriage has been broken for 10 or 15 years, but maybe it's time I just go back to church a little and add that stone to my marriage because I think people with good marriages go to church. That's gonna work for about six months and then it's all gonna fall apart again because in the pride of your heart, you're just trying to add a little Jesus to your life. My kid's been rebelling for a few years. You know what I haven't been doing? I haven't got enough religion in my life. Maybe I'll try a little bit of that because I've got, you know, I've got sports and I've got this and I've got a tutor for their classes and, you know, I don't really need to shepherd their heart. I just need to add a little Jesus, a little confirmation in their life and they can follow these religious rules in their life and then maybe they'll be a healthy, productive citizen in five years. It doesn't work like that. Jesus is all, look at me, Jesus is all or Jesus is nothing, but he says if we're lukewarm, he's gonna spit us out. The stone that the builders rejected demands capstone space. Jesus Christ is the center. And here's how our salvation works. That we lay our life down and we say, man, broken can't fix broken. Like Larry said, that I said, that we take an honest, evaluative step in the process and we say, how is that working for me? And we concede that the only thing we need is the cornerstone in our life. Jesus, you paid every ounce of penalty for my sin. I believe that you're the Messiah. I believe that you died on a cross. I believe that you rose from the dead. And so I don't wanna add you to my life. I want you to be my life. I want you to take over my marriage. I want you to take over my family. I want you to take over my finance. I want you to rule and reign in my life. You are the cornerstone. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you for the hope that we have in you. And I thank you specifically that you're not an added space. That you are the first foundational oddball cornerstone that we desperately need. And so anyone that's downtown or online or right here in the North Campus this morning, 
if they have never surrendered their life to you as a cornerstone, then I pray that right now in their heart you'd convict them of their sins, that they'd realize they're the tenant, but they don't have to stay the tenant, that they can go from tenant to child of God right here in this moment by repenting and confessing you as Lord, believing in their heart that you are the Son of God, that you died in their place for their sin, and you rose so that they can have eternal life in you. Usher in salvation as we head towards Easter, Jesus. We pray this in your name, and everybody said, amen.